Hi, I'm Daniel Pierce, and you're listening to Grotto Pod. The novelist, playwright, and short story writer Joshua First has long been interested in the history of American counterculture. His 2008 novel, The Sabotage Cafe, was a story of then and now punks defining themselves in opposition to the mainstream, dumpster divers living in the shadow of American consumerism. His new novel, Revolutionaries, out now from Knopf, explores the life, legacy, and activism of an Abby Hoffman-like figure, Lenny Snyder, as told by his disillusioned son, Freedom. Revolutionaries is populated with recognizable figures, both imagined and real. Among the fictional Lenny's allies are folk singer and icon Phil Oakes and famed radical attorney William Kunstler. And yet at the core of first books is a fascination with family, dependency, and mental illness, subjects that he explores with great complexity and intimacy. First, who was once a teacher of mine, joined us at the Grotto Studios on August 13th to discuss his new book and what messages the political upheavals of the 60s might have for us today. Hi, Josh First. Welcome to GrottoPod. Thanks for having me. So your new novel, Revolutionaries, is narrated by Freedom Snyder, who's the son of uh, fictional 60s icon Lenny Snyder. And I figured the best way to start this conversation was just to give listeners a sense of Freedom's voice. So I was wondering if you could read a little bit. Sure. I'll just uh, read the the very beginning of the book where Freedom uh, is uh, introducing himself to Great. the reader. That's a, uh, The book is a direct address to the reader, so it's all spoken. So he's actually talking to you as though he's just met you. Call me Fred. I hate freedom. That's some crap Lenny dreamed up to keep people like you talking about him. And it worked, right? I mean, you didn't drive all the way up here with your tape recorder and backpack full of good intentions to learn about me. I'm just the kid. What you want is more of him. More of the 60s hoopla, all that rebel music, the tie-dyes and free love and taking it to the streets. Even now, 28 years after he died, you can't get enough. So fine. It's been like that my whole life. Who am I to judge? By the time Lenny was the age I am now, he changed the world, or anyway, that's what he would have claimed. And me? I'm just some dude who's done some carpentry. Some bathtub restoration. Sustained myself by staying out of sight. I've worn ironic t-shirts and thought ironic thoughts about the commodification of revolution. Worked at coffee shops and bookstores. Whatever it took. I've run some scams. I've had, sc- I've had scams run on me. I've deflected and I've survived. If there's one thing you learn when you're Lenny Snyder's son, it's how to bullshit your way on through to the next day. But really, I don't know anything about anything. Except Lenny, I guess. I know a lot about him. I know I let him down, but he let me down too. Why? How? Well, where to start? I guess with him, Lenny Snyder. Alpha. Omega. This might take some time. You want coffee? I've got instant. So, what was the germ for this project? Uh, I've been... I've been trying to figure out how to write about the counterculture in America since probably, I mean, I I first thought I wanted to learn about and record the history of the counterculture in America back when I was like 16 years old, probably. It was the very first idea I ever had in terms of imagining my ability to communicate something 
to the world through a sensibility that might be of value. And uh, and it took a, a long, long time for me to to figure out what the the context in which to communicate that uh, so that it was it, it was something more than simply a historical record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And was there a particular period in kind of American countercultural history that, that riveted you? I mean, I know your, your first novel is in many ways a, a, a novel about the counterculture mm-hmm. of, a, of, a, of a different era than the one you focus on in this new book. I mean, I'd, the, the fact of counterculture is, is interesting to me. Each each historical moment of counterculture has its place and has its value, I think, and um, rises from you know whatever the variety of of pressure points in the culture at that moment might be. This one has always particularly riveted me. The the this one by by this one I mean the uh, the late sixties and early seventies and the history of sort of like like the hippie movement because it exploded out of I guess the recesses of America into the mainstream in a, you know, highly dramatic and uh, combustible way. And and so, I mean, you, you said that you were trying to figure out how to, to tell this story, and I, I feel like the way you answered that question with this book is is the narrator, Freedom, uh, one of one of the <laughs> great fictional first names. And and so I'm, I'm wondering how you kind of figured out this, this voice who is you know, I think in, in some ways quite submerged, but in other ways, you know, really, really present, a really distinctive voice. Mm-hmm. I, you know, to me, what makes a, a work of fiction uh, complex is, is if there are, there are layers of irony to uh, whatever it is that the, you're, you're being presented as an experience. Mm-hmm. If there are ways in which the, the, the fictional document the, the words on the page that the story that you're submerged in um, works against itself in, in some way so that there's a friction inside the prose and the reader is placed in a in a more complicated relationship to the story instead of being simply asked to identify with and then ride along with and cheer for it cha- it changes the the work that the reader is being asked to do I guess is how I would put it and uh, especially with the story about the hippies and sort of the radical the radical political movements in the 60s i had to be very conscious of not descending into a, a space of hagiography yeah. i needed to find a way to tell their story in a way that did honor to their story while also allowing for uh questions about that story to come in so i knew i had fred and i knew i had his very first sentence. And, and, and Fred is Freedom's nickname, just to reiterate that. Right, right. Fred, he hates his name, so he called, you know, he calls himself Fred. I knew I had this character and this angle that he, he had toward this, this anger, I guess, that he had toward his father. And I knew that that could carry the irony. But, uh, but, but he had so much anger that uh, the big challenge in the early portions of writing this book related to how to how to make it something other than just a, a, a rant against his father um, because that obviously wouldn't have served the larger purposes um, and it, it also wouldn't have been honest to Fred's experience you know we, we may we may hate our fathers but we hate our fathers because we can't can never separate from them yeah, yeah. 
And so, you know, I, I feel like another kind of unique feature of the of the book is is the form. I mean, it's uh, you know, as you mentioned, it's kind of a direct address. Mm-hmm. Fred is is talking to this you know journalist who's ostensibly working on a significant project of historical journalism about Lenny Snyder, and so. I think because of that, it's a really associative structure. It's not strictly chronological. It kind of reminded me, I don't know if you've ever read this book by Joe Brainerd, I I Remember, and it's Mm -hmm. kind of uh, every section begins with I Remember, Hmm. and then it's something from, you know, his own past. I have not read that book. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and that's kind of the the you know sort of the the only unifying yeah. <laughs> uh, thing between all these discrete memories is yeah. the fact that he remembers them but I, I, you know i i saw an element of that uh, mm-hmm. in this book and and so i'm curious to to hear you talk a little bit about figuring out how you wanted to to organize this and well i mean i mean the the short answer to that is that when i when that first sentence first came to me I knew that Fred was speaking. So it wasn't a written text, it was a spoken text. I knew that was one Oral of the history. That was right. That was one of the that was one of the initial things I understood. Even before I knew that he was speaking to someone, I knew I mean I I mean from the syntax of the sentence, call me Fred, I hate freedom, I knew he was speaking to someone, but I didn't necessarily know who he was speaking to and what the context of that speech was. But I did know that uh he was going to be talking and not uh writing. Which, in an interesting way, means that it is a chronological book. The chronology yeah, is yeah. the chronology of him sitting in that place telling you the story. It's, the story is taking place in real time. Yeah. And he's there in time telling you, the reader, um, what he's telling. The events that he's describing aren't happening in real time, but there's that layer of present time that's, uh, that's consistent because of the fact of his voice. Yeah. There's, there are a bunch of other books, actually, that... Um, that are spoken texts in, yeah. in certain ways that um, we don't, I mean, we don't think of spoken text as being a, like a, a literary form with a history, but I mean, Portner's Complaint is spoken yeah. text. Yeah, yeah, to uh, therapist. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, with its great punchline at the end. Um, uh, there's a book called uh, Lancelot by Walker Percy that's a spoken text in which, that was a, actually a really important book for me in terms of figuring out how to do this because you never hear you he's he's having a conversation with someone but you only hear the narrator's side of the conversation and you you get you get the sort of the the echo of um the space the the pressure of the space that uh the other person's dialogue is taking up mm. but you never but you never hear it um nicholson baker's vox is a spoken oh, text yeah, yeah, that's right. um mark uh Huckleberry Finn is in some ways feels often like a spoken text. So there's, I mean, this goes back a long way. So, uh, you know, I I wanted to ask about there, you know, this book contains a mix of of fictional and Mm non-fictional characters. You know, I think some will certainly see Abby Hoffman in Mm -hmm. Lenny Snyder, but then Phil Oakes uh, appears Mm -hmm. as as Phil Oakes. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm wondering about just you know why why you decided to do that that mixture of fictional characters that bear a resemblance to actual historical figures mm-hmm. and then you know actual historical figures included by name mm-hmm. uh, you know i've been i've been trying to figure out how to succinctly and clearly explain the logic behind this for a while now um 
because there is a logic behind it, but a lot of it happened intuitively. So on the one hand, I didn't want to write a piece of historical fiction that was tied to the facts. I wanted to have the license to make up my own history that uh, was was in conversation with those facts instead of being simply an uh, enlivening of the historical record. I wanted the anarcho-political trickster who uh, is Fred's father to be to be more more of a representative of the spirit of the times, a kind of a, um, an allegory for the totality of that time, instead of simply um, and entirely a, a, tr- a historical figure. And I wanted to, to carve a space for some of uh, my own family history in that space as well. So I wanted him to have a, to be a character with his integrity as fiction. But simultaneously, it was of real importance to me that uh, that he that all of them, that this family, Freedom, Lenny, and Susie, his mother, exist within the reality of this moment in American history, because the things that they're responding to and the experiences they're having needed to be porously related to the seriousness of that moment. Um, so so Phil comes in and on some level, without giving the whole story away, becomes a de facto member of that family for much of the book. And and so there's an overlap. If 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 Lenny is fictional and enters out into that real history, Phil comes out of that real history and enters into their fictional space. You mentioned just now the historical moment that you're that you're trying to capture and i i feel like if someone were to say this is a a novel about these icons of the 60s people will immediately assume that it's a book of, about the 60s but mm-hmm. in many ways it's it's about the 70s it's about the the mm-hmm. kind of hangover from mm-hmm. from that moment i mean i i think that certainly takes up the lion's share of the narrative am i am i right about that yeah i mean the only the only portion of the book that takes place in the actual 60s that, is that opening the opening section yeah. that, that that is an overview of the entire era or the entire decade. And then most of the book takes place from like 1971 until 1977. Yeah. Now, there's, you know, there are historians who would say that the, what we consider the 60s actually is like 1966 to 1976. Um, so there's some, I mean, there's, there's something to that. But, um, but it's a it's 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 about the the the, the slow uh, falling away from the space where these characters uh, could imagine that their ideals were going to become actuality, I guess. Yeah. 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 And there's also that level on which, because it's being narrated in the present, uh, it's about how our time interacts or or is in conversation with or. Uh, let's say, has abandoned all of those ideals. I want to put a pin in that because I definitely have have mm-hmm. questions about you know what you see as yeah. the kind of contemporary resonance of this story. But to that point you were making about just the kind of the hangover from mm-hmm. the 1960s, you know, you you see that playing out at the at the level of character with someone like Phil Oakes, who mm-hmm. 
you know, it's just this kind of titanic figure of American protest who just physically deteriorates and descends into alcoholism. And and so I'm, I'm wondering, he's such an important character in this book, if you mm-hmm. could just talk a little bit about, about what Oakes kind of means to you personally mm-hmm. and then maybe to the, to the project. Alongside my desire to write a book about the American counterculture, I have for many, many years ver- wanted to write about Phil Oakes. He could only have existed in that moment when he existed. He could only have become the the popular success that he became during that time because he was tragically earnest and um, he believed he believed wholeheartedly in what he was doing Um, he wasn't looking to present himself as a thing that could then be marketed as doing that he was authentically simply doing that Um, and that that's 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 both what led him to the the great fall that uh, his later life consisted of, um, and also what gave gave him the integrity and, and and gave his work the power it had in its moment. Um, and that's that's much harder to do. He was not he was he he, he was he was his his writing was often ironic, but he. Uh, he wasn't. He was. He wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't an ironic creature. He didn't. He, he didn't present himself in a canny way, by which to protect himself while presenting himself. Mm-hmm. And so he, 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 he ended up being uh, really fragile and exposed. I think. Um, and I, that to me was very powerful, and that to me is, embodies something about what we might learn from from that that era, and the ethos of that era. In the book, he's a counterweight to Lenny. If Lenny is the opposite of everything I just said about Phil, then we need to see... I mean, because Lenny, because Lenny is a trickster, and Lenny laughs at everything, and Lenny, there's always an irony. And there, there's, there's, there's always, like, two edges to his sword. And, and there's always a way in which Lenny is, is mocking you for believing him while he's begging you to believe him. And there's always a way in which Lenny is saying... The only correct response is cynicism, but that cynicism is simply a cover for your deeply held ideals. Um, and so we needed to—I I felt like the book needed to have a, a, a real counterbalance to all of that in order to, to see the span of emotional and intellectual engagement that that era embodied. Yeah, I mean, I think to that, to, to that point— Oaks being this painfully earnest figure, mm-hmm. whereas Lenny being sort of inscrutable. I mean, in, in in many parts of the book, he kind of seems like you know, like a floating signifier or something. I and I I, I mean that in the in the in the best way, and yeah. that you know, people construct different Lenny Snyder's, and he constructs different yeah. Lenny Snyder's. Yeah. And there was one passage I wanted to read. This this doesn't spoil too much, but this is. In the in a scene where Lenny's involved in a drug deal with some undercover mm-hmm. officers, and Fred is kind of imagining how the officers are regarding the experience, the arrest of the famous Lenny Snyder. Free rounds at Dempsey's, the wanton expressions on their wives' faces, all this because they'd pulled in a big fish, played the hero, protecting our way of life, faith, and family, and all that crap, the very essence of America, from the existential threat of Lenny Snyder. 
They were helped by the exhaustion of the populace, the desire among the hoi polloi for a simple exculpatory explanation for everything that had gone wrong since the psychedelic 60s had slipped into the drab, oily puddle of the 70s. People wanted order. They wanted sense. Anything but the ruin and chaos that surrounded them. How helpful, then, if Lenny, chaos incarnate, turned out to have never been anything more than a dirty Jew, a fast-talking petty thief, finally exposed to have built his whole career on the exploitation of their children's sweet, wishful dreams. Look, this man was no angel of light. He never intended to lead you back to Eden. This is who he is, who he's always been, a stooped, hook-nosed creature on the make for a big score. So, you know, I feel like this book, you can see in it the the power of... Uh, kind of galvanic individual like yeah. like Lenny to excite a public to kind of create mass mobilizations maybe even if those mobilizations are kind of playful gestural and yet you also kind of see the limitations of of movements that are organized around personalities like yeah. that around around principles like that yeah. I mean would you say that's a fair assessment that's, as I sure so I'm wondering getting back to I think the to me, one of the most sort of exciting questions uh, about this book, like, you know, what resonance does this have today? I mean, in our bleak social and political moment. I mean, I mean, there, there, there's a variety of angles at which I was trying to engage with today. The most, uh, I guess, the starkest relates to the gulf between what these characters were envisioning, the scope of their ambition. They wanted to, you know, they wanted to change society at its core. And the the dreams that the left carries with it now, the dreams that the left carries with it now are, are much more delimited and often are much more at odds with each other than, than, this, than, than, than this moment at least uh, projected itself as containing, you know? And so if the left often falls into uh, what to me seems to be a pattern of stagnation, a pattern of how do we just sustain this space where we've where we're, where we're stopping st- stopping everything from falling apart to to just see the um, the scope of what and the energy contained within this moment in the late 60s um, in you know in, in what hopefully is a is, is a is a more mimetic form than the uh, you know the cliches that have been handed down to us now. Uh, I think I think is to is to draw into question sort of what are we doing now? Um, it is a challenge to to our moment, or it. My ambition was that it would be a challenge to our moment. I, I was struck when reading your acknowledgments. Your, your acknowledgments conclude with, "Oh, and of course, I am grateful to Abby Hoffman." Provocation inspiration for having ever existed. We need your spirit in the world now more than ever. And I was frankly puzzled by that because this book is such an ambivalent portrait of Lenny Snyder, again, who bears a more than striking resemblance to Mm -hmm. Abby Hoffman. It it, it seems ambivalent, obviously about him just as a, as a person, as Mm -hmm. a, as a father, as a Mm -hmm. husband, but, but also as, as an activist, Mm -hmm. you know, I I mean, I I don't know. Well, I guess it depends on what the goal of the activism is, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I guess I would, I would, I would push back a little bit on ambivalent in that as opposed to ambivalent, it's, uh, Fred 
hates his father and loves his father. There's 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 a there's a there's a polarity to hopefully to the book's stance toward Lenny. It's not that uh, it's not that it's not a shrug. It's a it's a it's a fierce, passionate. This is important. Fierce, passionate. This has destroyed my life. Simultaneous, right? There's paradox there. It's more of a paradox than than an ambivalence. Yeah. In that in the uh, that Lenny uh, Lenny in fact is that force of nature that Fred sees him as, and that force of nature is a force for good in the world. The relationship between being a force for good like that in the world and uh, being a sensitive, conscientious, uh, attentive father, um, those two things don't necessarily coexist, right? Um, but, but, more, but more than that, uh, back to the question of what was the goal of the protest, right? I mean, the goal of protest when it is successful uh, almost always is policy-oriented. Successful protest knows exactly what it's attempting to attain in terms of governmental incremental change and targets that and finds tools by which to achieve that end. Um, that's not what Lenny's doing. Yeah. So is the goal to win? Is the goal to actually succeed? Or is the goal to carve open, however briefly, a space in which society sees itself for what it really is and sees that there is there are other ways to live in the world there are other spaces in which people can exist that what's the phrase maybe healthier for human beings and other creatures is that is that yeah. the phrase yeah sounds, yeah. sounds <laughs> good to me yeah this is i mean he's he's such a kind of chronologically specific Mm-hmm. figure Lenny mm-hmm. and I mean you you really appreciate that in the book when he is adrift in in the 70s and kind of yeah. later in his life he can't really manage or clarify mm-hmm. his own public relevance yeah. but I'm I'm kind of wondering how you imagine that spirit which you express a kind of longing for in your yeah. acknowledgments how you think that might manifest today I don't know how it manifests today. That's why. Yeah. That's yeah. why. I, that's why. I, <laughs> that's why go. I say that. Um, yeah. <laughs> I can tell you how it doesn't manifest. How, how I believe it doesn't manifest. It doesn't manifest in fear. It doesn't manifest in a, uh, a bunkered defensiveness that uh, it drives one to lash out at what one hates instead of lashing out toward what uh, one loves. Um, and a lot of what happens, especially on the left right now. From through my from my from where I'm sitting, is uh, is either making calculated decisions based on fear. Um, I'm afraid to lose my job. I cannot survive if I uh, stand by what I truly believe. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's I think I think that's 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 like the driving force of how American society keeps people in their place now. Yeah. Um, I think at that time it was it was it was less powerful. I think people were able to say. I'm going to do this regardless of what the cost is going to be. Yeah. Um, I think part of why we're so afraid is that we saw what that cost was for these people. Um, and then people who do go out and fight seem to be fighting with each other instead of fighting their enemy. 
I just have a kind of closing question about you, you were you were my teacher in, in graduate school and you are in, in our program a very celebrated teacher and so I'm wondering how your identity as a teacher in, informs your writing and, and vice versa and if you can just kind of talk a little bit about the yeah the role that, that teaching plays in your life. Well, my writing informs my teaching in that often when I'm constructing a class, a seminar, let's say, the, top, the, top, the focus of that seminar is often a formal or uh, structural issue that I, I want to explore myself because I want to figure out how to solve a problem in my own work. So I, w- along with the students, can, can create like a, a deep exploration of some particular writing issue that, uh, that hopefully, not just them, but I myself as well, can then uh, master, right? Like, uh, like time and fiction, okay. right? In that, in that, if this is if there's something complicated about a story that takes place in real time because it's all spoken, and how does the how, how do these various other aspects of the past get um, filtered through that, and what's the what's the, what's the tension between those two poles, those two uh, poles in time? Um, that's something that we can explore together through various looking at various other ways that other writers have looked at, at or have mani- manipulated time in their work, right? Um, so on on that level, they feed each other. On on, a, on another level, I, I to me, teaching is of another means of communication, and it's another communicative uh, transaction between me as an individual and the other individuals in the space. My, not so dissimilar from writing, but in a, in a different form. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in the in the best of times, I'm learning about the world, and about the possibilities of of, of artistic creation from the students as much as I'm teaching them. Whether that always happens or is always possible is another question. But 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 it's happened often enough that um, that it ends up feeding feeding me as an artist and as a human being, and hopefully um, I give back as good as I get. Absolutely. Well, Josh, thanks so much for coming on Grotto Pod. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure. And that's our show for today. Grotto Pod is produced by Susie Gerhardt, George Higgins, Ben Marks, Daniel Pierce, and Beth Weingartner with help from Kristen Cosby. The music is by Sugartown. Grottopod is concocted in-house at the Writer's Grotto in San Francisco. Please review and subscribe to the Grotto on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Pierce, and thanks for listening.